Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Connect on blogtalkradio.com. Catch us on the web at umconnect.info. Welcome to this new episode of Connect. I'm Michael Rich, the Web and Communications Manager for the Western North Carolina Conference. And our guest this morning is Greg Jones. He and I entered Duke Divinity School in the fall of 1982 together. And then he went on, completed his Ph.D. there, and then later became the youngest dean at the Divinity School. And he is now the Senior Strategist for Leadership Education at Duke Divinity School and the Ruth W. and A. Morris Williams Professor of Christian Ministry. So, it's good to have you on the show, Greg. Thank you. Great to be here. So, let's get into some backstory here. You and I both showed up at Duke in the fall of 82. Your father was uh, Dean Jameson Jones, and he passed away just before that semester began. And then I got to know your mother uh, when she was here at First United Methodist Church in Waynesville, and I was over at Long's Chapel. So, Tell us a little bit about your early formation with parents like yours, high-powered, highly influential in the church. What was it like uh, growing up as their as one of their children? Well, life was never boring, and uh, I learned a lot about uh, the Methodist Church, both its strengths and its weaknesses from uh, from both of my parents. Uh, when people ask me about uh, going into the Methodist ministry, I sometimes jokingly say I didn't know I had a choice because it's the family <laughs> business. Uh, my brother, my uh, grandfather, my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, I've got now a nephew, a son, a wife, uh, so... Um, Methodism and uh, and the church has been my life. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, uh, yeah, I remember your mother and her work with the music and other programs at First Church. She, uh, I wouldn't say she was a tyrant, but uh, she ran a tight ship. And I know that yeah. she must have ran hard on you and your brother. And, and look at what well, you both became. She did a lot uh, when... Uh, when we were growing up and has been a musician and uh, choir director. And then after my dad died in 82, in 1984, she was asked to be part of the uh, hymnal revision committee that uh, developed the 1988 uh, United Methodist hymnal, which uh, you know has had a huge impact in the church. And uh, she was one of the leaders, chaired one of the committees of that uh, uh, revision process. And so I learned a lot about love of worship and love of uh, of music from uh, from her, as well as uh, kind of both pastoral ministry and theological education from my father. Mm. Yeah, so um, we showed up in the fall of 82. I think the first class you and I had together was Lloyd Bailey, Old Testament. Mm. Yeah. That was something. And, yeah, it was a uh, few years ago. That was a few years ago. and <laughs> uh, uh, We were both, both thinner and had more hair, I think. I think that's true, unfortunately. Uh, but it was a it was an interesting fall for me because uh, having you know my father had been healthy all his life and he was 53 years old and to die in July. So I started divinity school still kind of reeling from that. And so in Old Testament and church history, and I had a course uh, with Fred Herzog on prayer and contemplation, and all of those courses were partly my trying to figure out. Uh, 
who this God was that would allow my father uh, to die at still a uh, relatively young age. So that first semester was a pretty event-filled uh, semester of sorting out a lot of things for which I now, looking back, am, am very grateful for uh, having been in courses where I could think about those issues and wrestle with them. Uh, no doubt about it. And yeah, th- Those were some interesting days at Duke. I look back and uh, we had Tom Langford, uh, or I had him for uh, theology that year, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and then uh, ran into him and his family here at the lake all the time when I was at Long's Chapel. And uh, there were just some old, powerful folks within the church that uh, uh, resonated there uh, those first semesters. But um, you know, I look now, and that faculty that was there is nothing like the faculty that you have at Duke these days. And, and yeah. uh, it was quite a, quite a uh, sea change that went from you know, my first semester to what, what we're looking at right now. And, uh, yes. and a lot of that is because of your leadership there as the dean. So, well, um, but uh, you went uh, straight from the, the Div School and then uh, went and did your Ph.D. And I, I'm thinking you were one of Howard Wass's first uh, Ph.D. students. Is that correct? At Duke, I was. Yeah, he had had uh, some at Notre Dame before he came to oh, Duke. Oh, sure. But yeah. I was, uh, uh, yes, at Duke. I may and have been so, the first one to finish with him. Okay, that was what I was thinking. And, uh, yeah, that he came on faculty just at the end of uh, my time there. And, uh, yes. you know, what a... Um, influence he was on the the rest of the faculty, the the rest of what folks thought about Duke. Uh, Howard Watts mm-hmm. was a, a game changer, and so what was it like being one of his grad students? Well, it was incredibly uh, stimulating, uh, sometimes bewildering, turning worlds upside <laughs> down. Uh, I also served as his graduate assistant, and so. Uh, I learned a lot because he'd hand me essays he'd written to to review and edit, and uh, so I got a, a, a an inside look uh, close up. Uh, one of the things that people uh, often just see just reading his work don't understand is just how deeply he cares about students and about teaching. And uh, I was continually struck by how much time he invested, uh, both inside the classroom and outside the classroom, uh, in helping students learn. Uh, He was incredibly demanding. Uh, Mm. I took two courses with him uh, my first uh, semester in uh, graduate school, and um, I've never read so much in my life in terms of uh, the assignments. Sometimes each class had two books for uh, a week, um, and it was you know, exhausting in that sense. But he cared deeply about how the questions were framed and the issues, and uh, he would... Uh, consistently give us direct and quick feedback. When I was writing my dissertation, I'd submit a chapter to him or a section of a chapter, and I'd have comments back almost always uh, within 24 or 48 hours. And they were extensive comments. So he was just a – he's an incredibly generous person uh, who would – and then when I was dean uh, and I would notice he would be in the office between 6 and 6.30 in the morning, the first one to arrive, and he'd be the last one to leave around 6 or 6.30 at night. And that's the kind mm-hmm. of work ethic he had from growing up the son of a Texas bricklayer, and he carried it with him into the kind of uh, scholar and teacher that he was. Yeah. yeah that, 
That sounds so much different. I, I did my PhD at University of Maryland. I remember sending chapters in, and I would have to call a month later and said, are you going to send me anything back? Um, yeah. I, I didn't have the investment from some of my professors on that committee. And I'm thinking, boy, would it have been nice to you know get immediate feedback from a, a professor? And uh, I think that uh, those kinds of stories uh, are hard to find in the academic world. Uh, they are. And I'm I glad to hear that about schools. Stanley Howard Watts. Yeah, um, I had friends at other schools who uh, had similar experiences to yours, and I learned from that. And with my own students now, I try to I, – I don't always uh, get quite as quickly as Stanley does, but I try to get back within a few days uh, feedback mm. because of what I of how much I benefited and uh, appreciated that. Now, you went straight from Div School to a Ph.D. What did you do uh, once you completed your Ph.D.? You went off and taught uh, – at a Catholic school, wasn't it? Yeah, Jesuit College in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, Loyola College in Maryland. That's what I was thinking. And how long were you there? I was there for nine years, uh, okay. taught on the faculty in the Department of Theology, and uh, also uh, the last several years directed the Center for the Humanities there, which gave me a taste for administration. Uh, and then you came back to your alma mater. I did, 1997. All right. Became the youngest dean ever at the Divinity School. Yeah. It was a, it was a privilege for us to uh, to come back. Actually, when they first contacted me about the search, I was hesitant, uh, partly because uh, my wife Susan had uh, just been given a really wonderful opportunity as senior pastor of a large congregation in Baltimore, and we were kind of settling in there. And then uh, when they called and she said, well, you know, this might be God calling us. We ought to process. And uh, part of that was that for both of us, I mean, it's where we met, but it was also a place where uh, Susan had really um, had her own call to ministry really formed and validated. Um, Mm. And so the Divinity School has always been a special place for us and the opportunity to come back and to serve it uh, was was a real uh, honor for uh, both of us to to envision uh, being able to help steward a place that had been so formative for both of our uh, faith and the the sense of our vocation. Yeah, and a lot of things happened uh, from '97 till the the time uh, was 2010 was when you uh, stepped down as the dean. Um, yes. A, a new chapel, a uh, new building. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, huge number of faculty. I'm thinking the faculty must have tripled in size uh, from the time I went there in 82 till uh, the time you finished in 2010. Uh, Can you tell me a few of the accomplishments that you saw important uh, in your time as dean? Sure. Well, when I got there, I was privileged to be following a number of uh, strong and effective leaders. Uh, Dennis Campbell had been my immediate predecessor, my father before him, Tom Langford, Bob Cushman before that. So I was in the really fortunate position of being able to build on strength, and uh, that was an incredible, uh, incredible gift. Um, What I saw as needs and opportunities included um, building stronger ties in the university, which meant that we developed some uh, some joint uh, programs with some other schools. Uh, we began focused around end-of-life care and mm. uh, 
medicine and nursing, um, and then broadened out with the Center for Reconciliation, and uh, then the the leadership education program that uh, works with the business school and um, figuring out some of those sorts of connections that strengthened our relationships. Also connecting in deeper and broader ways uh, with the church uh, in a variety of uh, uh, programs, uh, particularly around church leadership and strengthening the Wesleyan uh, connections, uh, a youth academy uh, for Christian formation. And then, as you noted, the new chapel and building, we, we had been needing space pretty desperately. And uh, so we were able to uh, to build that and uh, have that uh, become a new focal point uh, for the whole community uh, in, a, in some significant ways. What I learned about myself during those 13 years was that uh, I'm uh, by nature uh, someone who is drawn to building things, whether physical Mm. buildings or programs and new initiatives. And uh, it was a good time to be doing that because there was so much strength in the school. Um, It also meant building a new faculty because we did have a lot of retirements uh, during my uh, 13 years as oh, sure. uh, as dean. By the time I uh, stepped down uh, as dean, there were only, um, I think it, we were uh, three people. David Steinmetz was still there, but uh, uh, Rick Lisher, David Steinmetz had been appointed by Tom Langford, and uh, Bill Turner had been appointed by my father. And then everybody else had either been appointed by Dennis Campbell or about half of the faculty had been appointed uh, by me during those 13 mm. years. So it was a time of significant expansion and uh, and growth and a kind of generational transformation. As you noted, you know, people like Tom Langford uh, were giants uh, in their field and Moody Smith and Jim Crenshaw mm. and David Steinmetz. I mean, we're talking about uh, people who had been at the school for decades, and so how do you build continuity and continue to to strengthen the school while also having generational uh, transfer? When Tom Langford uh, retired and Moody Smith retired, I realized that between the two of them, uh, they had uh, more than 90 years of experience with wow. Duke University. You know, That's that, pretty that kind of uh, That kind of legacy is uh, not easily replaced. Uh, no doubt about one it. of the hallmarks of the strength. All right. Well, we're going to take a little break now and come back and talk more about what you're doing now. So uh, here's a word from Chris Quinn from the Western North Carolina Conference staff. I'm Chris Quinn, the Assistant Director of Information Technology. The Western North Carolina Conference is always working to innovate and adapt to ministry in the 21st century. Yes, it is technology, but it is also about Jesus and the good news. We take our vision statement seriously. Follow Jesus, make disciples, transform the world. The United Methodist Foundation of Western North Carolina is a ministry of the church for the church whose mission is to build a church for generations to come. We fulfill this vision by investing in people as well as helping churches and related institutions Invest the financial resources that God has given to them. My name is David Snipes, and we look forward to the day when you give your United Methodist Foundation a call. And you can find out more about the United Methodist Foundation of Western North Carolina at our sponsor page on the show's website, UM Connect. 
www.ghostbusters.info. And so we're back with Greg Jones and his job title now, Senior Strategist for Leadership Education at Duke Divinity School and the Ruth W. and A. Morris Williams Jr. Professor of Christian Ministry. All I can say is that is a long title. And when someone asks you, what do you do? How do you explain that job description? <laughs> well, I sometimes jokingly say I just try to stay one step ahead of the law. Um, I've always been somebody who likes to stay busy and doing uh, a variety of things. But what I would say is the kind of heart of uh, my vocation um, in whatever I'm doing is that I'm a United Methodist minister and theologian who's concerned uh, to um, help the church uh, strengthen its leadership uh, and Christian institutions in its leader in their leadership um, as we navigate uh, the significant changes that are happening in the 21st century. Well, and lots of changes, and I want to get into uh, questions related to that before we finish today. But you're teaching again in the Divinity School, and mm-hmm. and I'm guessing the Graduate School. What well, what are some of the classes that you've been teaching uh, lately? Well, I uh, did work before I became dean uh, on uh, forgiveness and reconciliation and uh, published a book in 1995 called Embodying Forgiveness and then a more recent one um, uh, in uh, 2010 called uh, Forgiving as We've Been Forgiven that I co-wrote with a survivor of the Rwandan uh, genocide, uh, remarkable Mm -hmm. guy named Celestin Musakura. So I teach fairly regularly uh, uh, in the area of forgiveness and reconciliation. I teach a course uh, now in, in our Doctor of Ministry program on uh, uh, strate- excuse me, strategy and vision. And then uh, I've been uh, team teaching every spring uh, the required course in United Methodist uh, Doctrine, History, and Polity. Ah, yeah, I remember that course with Bob Wilson way yes. back when. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm certain it's an improvement over what we have. <laughs> Well, it's been interesting, and what we're trying to do is uh, we have uh, uh, Susan, my wife, team teaches it uh, uh, with me. Uh, Lacey Warner uh, regularly has as well. And one of the things we've done in the last couple of years is we flipped the classroom so that we do the lectures electronically as part mm-hmm. of the homework, and that enables us then to have the students work in teams, and uh, and it's a more active classroom where we try to get them to think about issues and perspectives in the context of uh, what they're going to be doing as pastors, uh, and so they work in teams as a part of the course, and that's been a lot of fun, and I hope uh, engages them in conversations that they'll continue when they move out into uh, full-time ministry. Mm. Yeah, I, I think... Uh... Well, certainly it has changed drastically uh, over the years. I know that uh, technology plays a big part in all divinity school education now across the denomination, but um, the changes of society and this technological movement, uh, how you've given a good example of how that's changed the classroom. How, how has it changed your teaching uh, as a professor now? Well, it's changed a lot. Uh, the the course I do on strategy is actually a, a hybrid class where we meet for a week uh, on campus, and then the rest of uh, uh, the term, the next 10 weeks, is done online in both synchronous and asynchronous uh, 
uh, ways, and that's been uh, quite stimulating. And there's indications that uh, you know hybrid forms of uh, uh, teaching and learning actually are superior to either purely face-to-face -face or online. Um, and I really have appreciated the opportunities. Uh, sometimes I've had students who might be more shy or reticent to talk in a face-to-face -face setting with whom I've had great interactions, uh, both synchronously and asynchronously, um, online. And so uh, it's helped me become much more focused on what people are learning and not just what I'm uh, teaching or conveying in the classroom, and so I'm much less likely to, to in any class, get up and just give a, a 50 minute or 75 uh, minute lecture and focus much more on interactive modes uh, of engagement. And technology mm -hmm. also makes it possible to, you know, help people with visual who are visual learners, um, and uh, so it just provides a, a much better multi-sensory kind of environment uh, to teaching and learning. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking uh, nobody taught me how to teach when I was in graduate school, um, though I taught for three or four semesters at the University of Maryland. Uh, there wasn't a single uh, class that taught me how to teach, and um, and I'm pretty sure that's true across the board. And now yeah. uh, what's required of a professor, uh, you, you have to be uh, uh, at home in a lot of areas and media technology, the whole nine yards, in order to deal with a student that came up with a computer in their hands. And, yes. Uh, and it's a, and it's, it's a, a growing issue we need to be paying attention to uh, in the church. And I was uh, talking, I, I had an experience of uh, um, us babysitting a, a three-year-old uh, girl who's the daughter of a pastor friend and uh, his wife and we we spent the afternoon. They were going to the to the basketball game, and um, I thought, what am I going to do to entertain this three year old? And she came in the house with her iPad, sat down on the couch, and she manipulated the iPad in ways I didn't know it could be manipulated, and mm. just entertained herself and was learning and doing all sorts of things. And I just sat there and I thought, oh my goodness, look at how sophisticated she is with an iPad. And then I wondered to myself, I wonder what her Sunday school experience is like. Right. And I I just started thinking about that and then I talked to a to a person I know who's a Christian and a uh, a leader in the technology industry. He founded and uh, runs a pretty large company and that does uh technology and and I was talking to him and I said, "You know, we need to think about how technology is shaping learning in the church and uh, he said what do you mean and I so I told him the story about this three-year-old girl and I said what I fear is that she still goes to her church and gets the same kind of Sunday school printed lesson that I got when I was a kid in the 1960s and uh, and he just looked at me and he said oh my goodness my kids get that he's he's a young guy mm. with young kids and he said my kids come home with those Sunday school lessons and I didn't even think about that in relation to what I do in my work. So, hmm. you know, it was just a kind of wake-up call to him as it is to me that we've got to think more about what does Christian formation for children look like in a technological age. Hmm. Well, that leads me into another set of questions. I know that uh, part of your work uh, is involved with the faith and leadership group there, at the mm -hmm. Divinity School, and they're doing some amazing things. I I was in uh, uh, one of the um, the groups that met last November. 
I'm trying to remember what it was, but it was a leadership development group, and they, you had Marlon Jones in, and mm-hmm. it was quite an amazing uh, uh, couple of days with uh, him and other speakers and talking about the future. Um, what is leadership going to look like in the in the next 10, 15 years in the United Methodist Church, and and how do you see yourself as a uh, a person leading in, in the midst of this new leadership development going on? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a huge question. Um, I think I broaden it beyond the United Methodist Church because I think um, the whole church and actually all institutions are undergoing profound uh, transitions and, and change uh, culturally. In some respects, I think um, we're seeing changes that we haven't seen for a century. In other respects, maybe it's a couple centuries. And in relation to the shift from a print culture to a to a digital culture, um, it's a change we haven't seen in 500 years. And, right. uh, you know, the Gutenberg Revolution took, uh, historians would say, about a century for to really fully absorb all the changes. Um, and I suspect, you know, as much as we're still... Uh, adjusting to the to the internet and developments over the last two decades i think we're still just on the very early edges of that so mm-hmm. it seems to me we're in a time of huge uh adaptive challenges um and what i would what i would say is the tectonic plates of culture are shifting so that it doesn't feel like there's any uh, stable ground and what that means is is that we have to just understand that um uh, that we're in a constant learning mode. If we understand that that need to continue to learn and to think and to in- innovate um, is part of uh, an ongoing task and not something we can just kind of go take a class or go to a continuing education event and say, oh, good, now I know what to do. This, <laughs> it changes the mindset um, of what it means to lead. And that sense of ongoing learning can be quite exciting and invigorating, but it's also bewildering. And uh, so that sense of uh, uh, of needing to, to continue to learn is going to be what's at the heart of leadership. So what we do at Leadership Education is less um, kind of giving you techniques uh, that can fix things, uh, but rather trying to frame questions that will help uh, illumine the kind of adaptive challenges, whether you're a pastor of a congregation or a leader of a Christian institution, um, or you're involved in teaching or some other kind of organization. What are the questions you need to be asking that can help illumine um, you to go to work on the deep questions uh, that will help guide your organization for the future? Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Um, what do we need to do differently as a denomination, as a church, uh, to meet the needs of this 21st century? Or you, you mentioned this whole digital thing with teaching children. Is there um, a, a couple other uh, examples that you would see, you know, practical things that we can do in a local church? Yeah, well, I think uh, that's obviously one. I think uh, recognizing that uh, um, the we're going to need to be engaging differences uh, on multiple levels, both uh, because of uh, the global character of the church uh, and also because um, the range of ethnic diversity is just uh, 
incredibly rich and also complicated. Um, mm. I've done some work in Houston where um, the four largest ethnic groups all are double-digit percentages of the population. There is no majority population. But then you start to look into that, and, and when they say it's 37% Hispanic, but that actually means Mexicans and El Salvadorians and Guatemalans who are very, have very complicated very histories yeah. back in their home context. Uh, right. And the same if you think African and African-American. Well, Congolese are very different uh, from Kenyans who are very different from African-Americans in the U.S. So I think a second thing is really taking seriously um, the uh, the gift and the challenge of that kind of uh, diversity. And then the third thing I'd say, which isn't perhaps as practical as you were suggesting, but I think it's actually at the heart of what will enable Methodism to discover new vitality again, is actually to become more Wesleyan. Uh, we have mm. a lot of uh, what American culture and the world yearns for and needs in our DNA as Wesleyans if we capture the vitality and energy of what energized that movement in the 18th and early 19th century. Sometimes we see it in the 21st century in places uh, like uh, the Congo or Cote d'Ivoire or places where we have brothers and sisters uh, in the majority world. Um, but re rediscovering uh, the power of the Wesleyan movement, I think, is uh, one of the great challenges and opportunities for the people called Methodist. Uh, I think that's good stuff. I've been saying this for years, and I'm glad that you've confirmed it. Is there something very powerful in that 18th century uh, church that can empower us into the future? And it may indeed be our future as a United Methodist Church. I hope so. so. Yeah. I want to thank you for your time today. It's been good to reconnect with you. I'm sure we'll see you at annual conference this year. And yeah. um um, don't be a stranger on this show. We'll try and get you uh, to come back in a year or so, and we'll talk more about this future that uh, you're a part of. I'd look forward to it, and thanks for all you're doing. Okay, thank you. Well, thanks for listening to us on Blog Talk Radio. The show is going to be available as a podcast later today, and you can catch it on iTunes. Keep up with us at our uh, website, umconnect.info. And we're going to be back next week connecting United Methodists and their stories. Thanks to our sponsors, the Western North Carolina Conference and the United Methodist Foundation of Western North Carolina. You can find out more about them on the sponsors section of the website, umconnect.info. I'm Michael Rich, and you've been listening to Connect.